0: Chapter five. Romans chapter five. One of the most important theological discussions uh, in the history of the church is known as the Colloquy of Marburg. It took place in fifteen twenty nine. It was an assembly of Protestants across Germany, Switzerland, and Philip I of Hesse had the idea that if he could unite the Protestants. Then it would make for good politics, and so he called together the distance between. Uh, there was a dispute between uh, Martin Luther and his followers, and the followers of a man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. And the main the main participants in this colloquy and this theological discussion was on the one side Martin Luther and his chief lieutenant Philip Melanchthon. And on the other side, Zwingli and his chief lieutenant, a man by the name of Johannes Echolampadius. I always wondered how you'd put that on a test paper, Echolampadius. But anyway, the, uh, the discussion involved 15 points of theology, and they agreed on 14 of them. But the last one, the 15th one, they could not come to agreement on that. And that concerned the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And Luther, uh, Luther really didn't come very far from the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. And of course, you know that that doctrine means that when the priest says the words in the Mass, the bread and the wine literally become The body and the blood of Christ. Now, we use the word literally a lot now uh, when we mean figuratively. I have people tell me, there's a guy come down by my house the other night in an old pickup truck. He's literally flying. Really? How high was he off the ground? How, How much air was under the wheels? You mean he was figuratively flying, not literally. But the Roman church teaches still today that that literally... Becomes the body of Christ. So Luther, he followed what he called consubstantiation, that the literal presence of Christ was in and through and under, uh, in in the in the elements. Zwingli said no. Zwingli said it is a symbolic presence, and Zwingli argued that that Luther's view violated the Chalcedonian formula of the hypostatic union of Christ, uh, as, as does transubstantiation. Uh, Chalcedon, the church, agreed from the scriptures that Christ is, is one person, but he has two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature. And those are not confused, are mixed, are divided. Well, for, for bread and wine to literally become the body of Christ here in Athens on a Sunday morning, and if for it to literally become the body and the blood of Christ in Tokyo or Shanghai or Sydney, Australia, that would involve omnipresence, which is a divine attribute. The human Jesus, as a man, did not possess omnipresence. Uh, Luther argued, as did the Roman Catholics, and still do, that the that the human nature of Jesus infused those divine attributes, uh, the divine attribute of omniscience so that it would, was possible. Zwingli argued that, that uh, nowhere in the Bible was that taught, and that it was clearly Jesus when he said, Luther wrote on the table, uh, hoc es corpus eum, this is my body, and he underlined the word is, this is my body. And Zwingli said, nope, you're going to have to deal with me more honest than that. And so anyway, the the whole thing turned on the little word is. What does, what is, is mean, you know. Uh, In our discussion, or in our uh, study of Romans, we've come to a section where a little word in is terribly important. Paul is going to argue in Romans twelve, uh, Romans five twelve through twenty one, of mankind's union with Adam. He says that mankind are all born in Adam, and when you become a believer, you come to be in Christ. The one union leads to death and condemnation. And the other union leads to life and righteousness. This is a this is a difficult section of the letter. I, I'm going to say that repeatedly, you know, uh, through the book of Romans. This is a difficult section. Uh, there's a lot of dispute about what it means uh, when he says sin came into the world through one man and death reigned because all sinned. But we're going to look at it very carefully because it's extremely important. The Scottish theologian James Stewart called union with Christ the heart of Paul's religion. And he said this more than any other conception, more than justification, more than sanctification, even more than reconciliation, is the key which unlocks the secrets of his soul. John Murray went even further. He said union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Now, everybody in the world today, all seven billion of them, or how many are on the planet, are either in Adam or they are in Christ. There is no in-between. So it, it is important that we understand what this means. Uh, Paul's argument thus far has had to do with the nature of justification. We come now to something that is new, but not really new. Uh, I said last week, Paul's objective remains the same through all the way through the end of, verse, of chapter 8. He wants to enhance our assurance. Chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 are all about assurance. It's about what has come to us as a result of our justification. He deals with sanctification, sure. But he still still has the objective in mind of telling us that what God has begun in us, he will take through to completion. Uh, And in addition to justification, we have come into union with Christ. What theologians sometimes refer to as the mystical union. Now, this is revealed to us in the Bible, but I'm not sure that we can ever fully understand it. I I certainly don't. Uh, And this is not something new because really in verse 10, uh, most translations don't deal with it you know, in verse ten, Paul said, "For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life?" Literally, the Greek says, "We shall be saved in His life." The word "the word by" uh, means usually that we are saved through Christ by His work on the cross and that we are saved through faith. Faith is the vehicle that brings us to that salvation because of the atoning work of Christ. But that's not really the idea here. Uh, the The first part is dealing with that, but the second part goes beyond it. The argument is if God saved us through the death of Christ, that is through faith in his atonement, he will eternally and certainly save us By our being in his life. We are in his life. We are in union with Christ. If you understand union with Christ, then the perseverance of the saints and eternal security will never be a problem for you again. You are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are forever in Christ. You cannot go back to being in Adam. And you can't be halfway. You can't be, well, I'm kind of partly in Adam, partly in Christ. No, you can't do that either. You know, you're either in Christ or you are in Adam. The word in means in the sphere of, or in the realm of, or in connection with his lot. So I want to kind of put this in the biblical context and then talk about some biblical illustrations of it uh, and a little bit about what it means. Union with Christ is, is rather, as I said, difficult to understand, but we need to keep a couple of things in mind here. First, the union of the believer with Christ is one of three great unions in scripture. The first is the union of the Trinity, the persons of the Godhead. Christians, as well as Jews, speak of one God. Yet on the basis of uh, revelation of Scripture, we who are Christians believe that this one God exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are intimations of that way back in Genesis, where God said, let us make man in our image. Those are plurals. Uh, and then it's more fully taught in the New Testament. We believe uh, that there is one God, and yet he exists in three persons. And the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. There are three persons of the Trinity, they are distinct, and yet there is one God. Now, I don't understand that. I just don't understand that. How is that possible? I don't know. But the Bible teaches it, and so I believe it. I believe there is one God who exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see sometimes all three of them manifested. Jesus the Son is baptized. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends upon him. The Father's voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son in whom... I am well pleased one God three persons there is a unity in the Godhead that cannot be divided Cannot it cannot be divided and yet there are three persons distinct persons then there is the, the mystical union of the two natures of Christ in one person the Lord Jesus Christ is one person he is not a multiple personality, and yet he is both God and man, possessing two natures. Sometimes you'll hear that referred to as the hypostatic union of Christ. And I said before, the theological formulation of that came at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, where a group of theologians gathered to write down as succinctly as they could, what the Bible teaches about the union of the two natures of Christ in one person. And part of it says that Jesus is to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and occurring and concurring in one person and one subsistence. Not parted or divided into persons, but one and the same son. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is man. There is a unity of two natures. And it doesn't take you, it doesn't take anybody who hears that, but about ten seconds to come up with what ifs that I can't answer. Well, what if this? I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't know. It again is a mystery. Isn't wasn't that what Paul said to Timothy? Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Christ was manifested in the flesh. I don't, I don't know. Besides the Trinity, if there's a greater mystery in Scripture than the two natures of Christ in one person. We don't understand it all, but we believe it, because that is what the Scripture teaches. Uh, I'm confident that after one hour in heaven, I'll be a much better theologian than I have ever been in all the years that I have spent on earth. Uh, and, and believe it or not, I actually just didn't get up here to tell you all I don't know this morning. Uh, that'd take too long anyway. But the, the the third great union is the one we're talking about here in Romans five, the unity of believers with Christ, and we're probably never going to fully understand it either. And yet, it is taught by the Bible. It was first taught by Jesus Christ. Uh, he did not use the term "mystical union," but he taught it in other words and in uh, analogies, frequent in Scripture. You remember in in John fifteen. He talks about the vine and the branches and he says this i am the true vine remain in me and i will remain in you no branch can bear fruit by itself it must remain in the vine neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me i am the vine you are the branches if a man remains in me and i in him he will bear much fruit apart from me you can do nothing the emphasis on the passage It is the power of Christ nourishing and working through the disciples. Uh, So the vine and the branches teach this mystical union. The Lord's Supper. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus said, This is my body. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. The ordinance clearly teaches... And symbolizes our participation in the life of Christ. It, it, the emphasis is on empowering and permanence. Jesus becomes a part of us. When we are eating, we are symbolizing the fact that we are in Christ, that we are in Him. Uh, Jesus also used the analogy or the illustration of a foundation and the structure built upon it. He said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Paul made ample use of that. He talked about us being God's building. He said, for No one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He told the Ephesians, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In the next verse, the building becomes a temple. He says, in him the whole building is joined together. And rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Notice the words, in Him. In Him. In Christ. The whole building is joined together. We are in Christ. We are joined to Him. And as a result of that, we are joined to each other. We are are joined to one another. We become a temple. Someone has said in the Old Testament... God had a temple for His people. In the New Testament, He has a people for His temple. We are, we are the temple of God. We are in Christ, and together, in Him, we are joined together. He also, the Bible also talks about us being the body, and Christ being the head. Paul said, and God placed all things under Christ's feet, and appointed Him to be head over everything, For the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We are the body of Christ. Christ is the head. Uh, I I, I remember uh, years ago hearing a sermon by Dr. Adrian Rogers on uh, Matthew 14 about Peter walking on the water. And he said, Peter should not have worried... He should have known that he could not drown as long as he kept his head above water. And Christ is the head and we are the body. We can never drown because the head is always above water. We are in Christ and in him we are secure. In these verses and others like them, the emphasis is on growth and the proper functioning of the church under Christ's sure direction and in first corinthians paul uses that image to 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 demonstrate that each christian is needed if the church is to function properly everybody is needed every member of the body is important Uh, paul talks about that he says the the eye can't do the hearing The ear can't do the seeing. You know, we need the members of our physical body. They, they each, each member has a task to perform. The church needs every member of the body. You have gifts that I don't have. I have gifts that you don't have. And if we are going to function properly, you have to exercise your gifts. If you are going to help me to grow in Christ... If you're going to help me to become the Christian that I should be, you're going to have to exercise your gifts in the body. That is a given, and yet oftentimes it's so far from reality. Probably the greatest illustration of the union of uh, Christ and his church uh, is in the marriage ceremony. The marriage of a man... And a woman form one flesh, one family. In Ephesians, uh, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The emphasis here is on a love bonding here there is one marriage made in heaven that is Christ and his church and it is inseparable that marriage is inseparable it is for all of eternity for all of eternity we will be the bride of Christ and he will be our bridegroom we are in him we are joined to him in a mystical union And that union can never come undone. In the studies that follow, we're going to be looking at our uh, union with Christ in detail. We're going to compare it initially to the contrasting union uh, with Adam. Uh, But again, this is put here in the letter at this point. Remember to assure us, of our security, to assure us that we are eternally bound to our Savior, because we are in Him. Uh, our union with Christ is is seen in every great doctrine of Scripture. Think about election, the fountain of salvation. Itself is in the eternal election of the Father. And we are told that that is in Christ. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. The Father elected from all of eternity. But he elected in Christ. And again, we don't know all that that means. But we can rejoice in the fact that those who are saved are saved by the eternal choice of the Father. We were never chosen apart from union with Christ. We're chosen in Christ. It is in Christ that we have redemption. Redemption. Christ gave his life and ransomed his church. He loved his church and gave himself for it. It is in Christ that the people of God are regenerated. Paul said, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. From the beginning of salvation, we are in union with Christ. All of the benefits of our salvation are secured in Him. It is in Christ that we will ultimately be resurrected and glorified. It is in Christ that the dead will be raised incorruptible. The the, the question is, are you sure that you are in Christ? Are you married to Him? Do you know that you are His bride? That He is your bridegroom? That you are submitting to Him in all things? To be in Christ is to be eternally in Christ. It's not possible to be in Christ today and not be tomorrow, or next year, or 40 years from now. So... The, 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 this is just kind of a an overview of verses 12 through 21. And the next next time, Lord willing, we're going to look at our union with Adam. Uh, we're going to find out some surprising things there. Maybe, for some of you. Some of you didn't know that when Adam sinned, you sinned, did you? Yeah, yeah you didn't know that? Yeah. So anyway, we're going to go there. But keep in mind that these things, again, are written for our assurance that we may know that we have eternal life. Let's pray.